mean, I'm not surprised at the end of all this, there's just two dudes, two bros with their swords and their chairs, both missing like an arm and a leg, and they look at each other and they're like, it's, yeah, this is it, right? And it's like, yeah, this is it. And they're like, see you on the other, other side, and then they fist bump, and then they fight from the chair. <laughs> that literal yeah. armchair warriors. <laughs> <laughs> the real armchair generals. <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Hey, hey. Lovely day out there today. Yes, it is, and that all rhymed. Um, don't know what to say about that, but... We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're gonna try anyway. So, George, what's queued up for this week? Today, we will be doing the much-anticipated next installment of our series on dudes who have a European capital city named after them. I'm just Ella. kidding. That would be a really, really short series, because, wouldn't you know it, very few people end up with a capital city named after them. But today, we're talking about one of the legends who does. That's right, Jean Perisot de Lavalette. Uh, I have to say, that's, uh, it's a few too many names to say every time, so, uh, we probably need to come with some kind of nickname or something. Uh, what he's, what we should call him for short. Okay, well, there's actually a ton of debate among scholars, <laughs> and I can hear half our listeners logging off because that sounds boring AF, but yeah. bear with me. <laughs> um, there's a ton of debate whether he went by Lavalette or Davalette in his actual life. Um, it's pretty clear that he usually signed things as Davalette, but for some reason in history books, he's almost always called Lavalette, and that's how he's referred to later on, and that's what I've always heard. So for the purpose of this show, he's going to be Lavalette. Uh I guess, revolt against the modern world. <laughs> um, so, it looks like, uh, looks like you're going to be breaking out your whole uh, scholarly persona pretty early today, and uh, I am expecting a wild ride, so shall we head down to the history lab and get started? Right behind you, King. <laughs> In a world Pirates, knights, empires, rocks, hard-to-define warrior monks who were also pirates, an inexorable tide of Ottoman expansion, more pirates, and some islands. One courageous band of pirate knights, who were also monks, refused to give up their rock. Join us today and learn how to get a capital city named after you in just ten easy steps. So, Aaron... If you were ruling an empire and you had to establish a new currency, um, which was, uh, sorry, going, uh, yeah, I fucked that up. I so, Aaron, if you were ruling an empire and you had to establish a new currency, which was not going to be some twisted means of geopolitical coercion tied to the value of decomposed dinosaurs, and also... <laughs> <laughs> and also, was it controlled by corrupt plutocrats in New York? What would you base your currency's value on? 
First of all, I haven't heard or read anyone using plutocrat since I was in my G.K. Chesterton phase. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot you had that phase. I did. Um, Oh, shit. If I had to establish an empire with a a new currency. Okay. Uh, obviously everyone would trade in ferrets and minks. And not the skins, live ferrets and live minks. Uh, because it would be hilarious, uh, and it would also be less slippery somehow than the American dollar. So, uh, what about you? What would you base the value of the George Mark? (laughs) Um, I was thinking about this, and I think I would probably base the value, the value of the currency of the George Mark would be tied to the supply of memes that are actually funny. Because, let's face it, no government or corporation can manipulate the supply of memes that are actually funny. We've all seen what happens when feds or corporate shills try to make memes, and let's just say nobody's buying that crap. But Disney did invent the Baby Yoda meme, right? I mean, they invented it, but it wasn't funny at first. It wasn't until later when people, like, like made it horrible in some way that, they made it, that it became funny. I mean, no financial system's perfect. Oh, yeah, obviously. All right, computer, please bring up Jean de la Vallette. Vallette? Vallette. Okay, so, since uh, we're trying to keep things nice and tightly formatted, I thought we'd uh, we'd start with Lavalette's physical appearance, as we do. Right. But, since everyone is probably tired of contrived descriptions filled with pompous remarks and half-baked puns, I thought it would be cool instead to make you describe him off the cuff based on this picture I've provided. I love the spontaneity. Uh, first off, he has... One of those excellent waffle collars that they used to wear way back in the day. You know what I'm talking about. It looks like their head's on a platter a little bit. Um, he's got... But that's that's just his garb. His face. <laughs> this is one of the most intense-looking people I've ever seen, and it's just a profile. Um, the His eyebrows are, like, thicker than, like... I don't know. It's, like, thicker than uh, Anne Hathaway's were in The Princess... Or not The Princess Bride, but The Princess Diaries. Did you ever it's see like- that movie? It's like his eyebrows each have their own mustache. <laughs> That's a really good way of putting that. <laughs> uh, I think, uh, let's see, he's, he's got a, a crow's, what do you call that, a crow's perch, perch, uh, widow's peak? Widow's peak, why was it called a crow's peak? I, I don't know. What the fuck? <laughs> I'm so out of it today, and I'll tell you why I'm out of it, is I'm having to listen to uh, George through my computer speaker output which means i can't monitor myself on my mic so i don't even feel like i'm on the show right now i just feel like i'm talking to george which is anyway that's completely off topic he's got a he's got a his eyebrows have mustaches his beard has a mustache his mustache has a beard uh this is one of the toughest looking gentlemen i think i've ever seen on here and he he definitely looks like a gentleman and a scholar yeah look at look at the way he's just looking out off to the side like i don't put it this way i wouldn't want to be whatever he's looking at yeah, I mean, but we all know he's French, right? He looks like uh, he looks like he's staring at a pretty tasty baguette. I would I would have to hazard to say. I mean, <laughs> I wish I was staring at a tasty baguette right now. Oh gosh, you know what I was pre-show? I was just munching on saltines because that's all I got within reach. I haven't eaten anything all day. I'm so hungry. So I think after this show is over, I'm gonna like go get a massive burger or something. That sounds that sounds pretty good. I might uh I might run down to the old gas station and get a burrito or something as well. <laughs> God. Mm. Uh, and here I was just <laughs> telling you I was joining a gym. <laughs> the food of kings. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> 
Ah, uh, well, I think that's probably enough of that. I think it also might be time to actually start with uh, Lavalette's early life. All right, let's do it. So, um, unfortunately, this is one of those cases where there's just not a whole lot of information available about someone's early life because they weren't from a, you know, super famous family. And so they just weren't really worth writing about until they'd already done all the stuff that made them famous in their adult life. And so nobody was really keeping track of their childhood. And so the details we have are pretty frugal since it's just basically later people working back and being like, well, we can reconstruct these little bits and pieces. But nobody at the time was keeping track because they didn't know what a freaking baller this guy was going to be. Right, of course. You know, you can't look at a kid and be like, this guy's going to be, you know, clearly amazing. You just, except for Swedenborg last week, like they knew from the beginning that there was something up with that guy. <laughs> yeah, that that's fair. That's fair. So, yeah, so we don't have we don't have a whole lot about the early life. What we do have is this. So we know that uh, Jean Lavalette was born in 1494. Probably it may have been 1495. Some of the things disagree. You know, deal with sure. it. Uh, in southwestern France in a place called Kersi, um, to a noble family known, unsurprisingly, as the Lavalettes. Curveball, I know. I know, you just blew me out of the water there. That was uh, <laughs> that was very, uh, very sneaky of you. His family's name was the same as his? <laughs> crazy! <laughs> what a concept. Crazy how nature does that. So um, crazy. <laughs> so, uh, this family, the Lavalettes, uh, was one of those sort of prominent and wealthy, but not quite first-string noble families. Gotcha. Uh, they were descended from the Counts of Toulouse, which was the dominant city in southwestern France. Um, and fun fact, the rulers of Toulouse were originally appointed by Charlemagne and his successors, but it later developed into a semi-independent hereditary monarchy until Toulouse eventually ended up becoming part of the Kingdom of France in the 1200s. Uh, is this the place that they put in the Witcher DLC? This is the place that that is based off of, actually, yes. Oh, for real? Yeah, no, this this region of France is where uh, blood and wine is inspired by in its landscape. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's it actually called in in blood and wine? How dare you, sir? It's Toussaint. Toussaint, that's it. Yes, yeah. Toussaint. But yes, no, Toussaint is based on this area of France. So there you go. Wow. It's blowing my mind with these these Witcher facts and logic. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So the uh, the Lavalettes uh, were descended from these Counts of Toulouse, but they were like a JV part of the family. Uh, they weren't like the, the most important part. So while they were definitely elites, uh, they were just sort of, you know, we have local influence and wealth elites. Not really, I'm a found my own kingdom with blackjack and hookers type of elites. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I must say, I am relieved we're not dealing with the blackjack and hookers kind of elites because... Uh... Because uh, we've covered that a lot recently. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, mm -hmm. every week on this show, Blackjack and Hookers. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, um, among our... Like, rate, subscribe for Blackjack and Hookers. <laughs> hookers. <laughs> among our Lavalette's immediate ancestors, there were quite a few uh, knights and crusaders and stuff like that. So, like, they were, uh, you know, they were an important and involved family, but they weren't a super powerful family politically. Um, both his father and his grandfather had served as knights and fought for the French king, which, you know, seems to set up a pretty clear expectation about what, uh, little Jean Lavalette is going to do, right? You know, when right. your dad is a knight who fights for the French king, your grandpa is, 
that set seemed to set up a path, but will he follow that path? Well, stay tuned to find out. Subscribe to Patreon to hear the answer to this question right now. <laughs> Alright, I'm gonna stop plugging. <laughs> and I'm sorry to say that's about all we have for his early life, because, uh, well, no one was writing anything down because they didn't know what a baller he was gonna be, so that's the early life. I'm sorry it's so, uh, frugal. Well, I'm just, all I gotta say is I'm just glad it's over. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, the first thing we really know concretely is that when Lavalette was 20, so probably in 1514, um, or thereabouts, he actually decided he wasn't going to spend his life serving the King of France like his ancestors had done, but instead he decided he wanted to serve the big man himself and become a monk. Oh. Huh. It's an interesting decision. Yeah, but this isn't the uh, this isn't the kind of monk you're thinking of. Lavalette joined the Order of the Knights of the Hospital of Saint John of Jerusalem, and that is a military monastic order whose members were knights, but also monks, and they fought as knights for the church and for Christendom as a whole, rather than being tied to a particular kingdom. But at the same time, they, you know, were, lived in monasteries and did the whole monk praying thing, but it's just that they were also, like, Navy SEALs. I see. So they weren't, like, uh... Let's see. They fought for all of Christendom, weren't tied to a specific monarchy so we're talking about uh the un aren't we oh god <laughs> joking joking don't <laughs> i was i was just gonna say that like uh if if these had been the type of monks in the monasteries the vikings were sacking i think it would have gone a little bit differently true good point yeah uh. yep so this uh this order the order of the knights of saint john had been founded in 1099 to rebuild and run the hospital in jerusalem Hence the name Hospitallers, which is what these knights were often called. So if you ever heard Knights Hospitaller, uh, that's these mm -hmm. guys. Yeah. I think he could play as them in Crusader Kings. I don't remember. I think um, he can. Anyway, so that hospital in Jerusalem had been built by the Pope around the year 600. It had actually been expanded a lot with a big-ass donation from none other than Charlemagne in the year 800. Um, and then around the year 1000, the Caliph burned it down. Ah. Uh. Uh, so they're back at it again, aren't they? <laughs> back at it again. Oh, but man. at this at uh, at that time, 1099, Jerusalem had just been taken by the Crusaders, and so pilgrims were once again coming in in huge numbers to visit the Holy Land, and you know the the holy sites were once again open to them, and it was obviously much safer for them to go to Jerusalem when it was a Crusader kingdom instead of when it was part of the Caliphate. So, could you remind me what time period this is? Because you just gave me a lot of dates. This, right now we're talking about the establishment of the Order, so this is 1099. Okay, cool. Yeah. And so, pilgrims had been continuously going, but as things got, uh, got pretty unfriendly between the West and the Caliphate, um, pilgrims started, you know, like, being killed and stuff, and it just wasn't safe. But now that Jerusalem is... is in Christian hands, there's just massive floods of pilgrims coming in. Right. That's to be expected. And, yeah, and when you have a massive flow of pilgrims, um, you're going to have perpetually massive numbers of people who need help of some kind. You know, people who are traveling get lost, or they get injured, or they catch some sort of disease. And when you're all the way across the Mediterranean, in the Holy Land, um, surrounded mostly by people who don't speak the same languages as you... 
and you may very well have spent all your money on traveling there and don't have money to, you know, pay for, uh, for medical care or things, uh, you know, that can be a really bad situation to be in, as you can imagine. Oh, I've, I've been there. You know, the last time I was going to Jerusalem, I just wanted to find a 7-Eleven and, you know, buy a Hot Pocket and, and cook it up, but, you know, there was, there was nothing for me because, um, the Caliphate had burned all the 7-Elevens down and... Disgusting. <laughs> So anyway, that's why a hospital had been established in the first place, as a center to help and take care of pilgrims coming in from all over the world. So Makes when sense. this hospital gets refounded by this new uh, monastic brotherhood in 1099, they start providing all these services in Jerusalem, and they attract members from all over the, the Western European Christian world, uh, because a lot of people think, wow, that seems like a really great thing to do. I'm going to go do that. And so you end up with people from all over the Western European world, you know, in Jerusalem in this hospital, which has the added benefit because then you have people who can speak tons of different languages. And so when you have pilgrims coming from all over Europe, it means you're able to probably find someone who can speak the same language. Convenient. It is. It is. And it just so happened that many of these people joining were nobles and knights who'd wanted to just uh, leave behind the sort of local politics and dynastic struggles and do something else with their lives. And for a lot of them, joining a religious order seemed like a good idea. And so you had a lot of, uh, you know, people from knightly military backgrounds who were joining this order. Cool. Yeah, that's like all all's good so far, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm tracking too, so that's that's pretty impressive for me because we're recording this at uh, three thirty in the afternoon, and this is my typical um, crash hour. So, yeah, I'm with you. I'll, I'll try. Here. I'll try to. I'll try to keep it lively. Try to keep. Yeah, it lively. I mean, the only way you're going to be able to do that is to make sound effects with your mouth, uh, like I'm a child and can't understand what's going on. And that's uh, that's just going to mess with the audio quality. And uh, so, well, if you fall asleep, you fall asleep. <laughs> So anyway, even though uh, Jerusalem and its immediate area were pretty safe now that it had been uh, taken and made into this Crusader kingdom, there were many other pilgrimage sites, uh, you know, associated with events in the Bible and such that were further afield around the Holy Land and were sometimes very dangerous to get to, what with bandits and Saracen raids and whatnot. And so often, pilgrims who left Jerusalem to try to go reach these other pilgrimage sites ended up getting robbed at best and uh, taken into slavery or murdered at worst. Jesus. Wow. Well, I mean, so what, were they, what, what did they want to see out there, out of curiosity? Oh, you know, like uh, things associated with different parts of the Bible. So like, you know, places from Jesus's life or places where stuff from the Old Testament happened. Oh, okay. Interesting. Hmm. Yep. So anyway, so this group, uh, the Brothers of the Hospital of St. John, you know, they were working hard to serve the needs of pilgrims within Jerusalem, and they were probably pretty pissed when people they healed and helped then got sold into slavery the next week. Like, I'd yeah. be pretty upset. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, as it happened, this particular group of monks had a lot of knights and nobles and people who were no strangers to violence or war before joining the order. So they started organizing armed escorts to protect pilgrims on the road. Well, so, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So if you want to, you know, like go to Mount, you know, go to Mount Sinai or something, you can go on sort of this uh, this guided tour group with uh, armed monks to protect you from slavers. Can you do that today? Because uh, just curious. Um. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you can negotiate with someone for armed protection. 
Uh, but they have to be knights. I accept nothing less. And that's going to be a little harder. Uh, well. Mm. So, um, pretty soon, they kind of had a whole regular military organization worked out because turned out this was a service that was really in demand. And so, in addition to their running of hospitals and charitable activities and being monks, they also had pretty much a full-fledged military administration worked out within a few decades. Dang. Well. Yeah. I have and nothing so, uh, else to say. That speaks for itself. <laughs> yeah, and everyone was pretty excited about this, uh, except presumably the Saracens, uh, since having right. safe roads meant that everyone's jobs were much easier. You know, it, merchants could travel more easily. You didn't have to worry about letting, you know, letting your kids play outside that they might get kidnapped by Saracen slavers. Like, it was, you know, everything was better in the 50s. So, <laughs> it, uh... It obviously costs a lot to run hospitals and keep a standing army at the same time. So kings uh, started donating lands to the order, which would then be managed and the revenues from, you know, farming or trade or whatever activity the place was good for would go to the order instead of going to some count or duke. And huh. so, eventually, you know, pretty soon the order had a lot of lands in very not only in the Holy Land, but also lands around Europe that they were getting revenue from to do all these things in the Holy Land. And that's kind of how military orders happen, is that they provide a service and people are happy about it and donate land to them, and soon they end up sort of being a little, like, quasi-international kingdom. Interesting. Wow. Um. So, basically, not to recap or anything, but so they're basically supported by uh, farmland back home and around the Holy Land and all that stuff. Um, and yeah, I guess you would need some kind of income. You can't just be all charity all the time, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, a standing army costs a lot of money, no matter who you are. Oh, um, shit. <laughs> and, you know, like sometimes they'd, you know, like uh, someone would give them the rights to control a trade port and then they would get to, you know, keep the, uh, the tariffs and stuff instead of them going to, you know, the king or whatever. So like there are all sorts of different privileges that, you know, rulers will grant to somebody as a, um, you know, a way of allowing them to get revenue. Yeah, interesting. Cool. Okay. Yeah, so no, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty decent system, all things, all things considered. Like, it's not, it's not too well, bad. I mean, it's not too... it was, it was the Dark Ages there, George. True. Oh, wait, are we still, doesn't the Dark Ages supposed to end like around 1200 or something? I, don't uh, know. I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Anyway, all that was important background, but now we've got to do some fast forwarding. Basically, two centuries later, as the Crusader states are slowly being gobbled up by the rising tide of a resurgent caliphate, uh, the Hospitallers are in need of a new home, since the fall of Jerusalem in 1291 meant that they no longer had a headquarters for what was by then a pretty substantial international organization. Because, hmm. you know, they're in Jerusalem, and then boom, Jerusalem falls. And you've still, like, got stuff all over, you know, all over Europe. And you've still got, you know, all these people in your organization. But you don't have a headquarters anymore. So that, that makes, that's a bad situation to be in. Right. Well, I was going to make a joke here about how now it's time for them to go underground like the Templars and secretly control the whole world. Um, you know, there's conspiracy theories about that, isn't there? Like, the Templars or some shit. 
Yeah, because it's actually around this time, uh, the beginning of the 1300s, that the Templars get uh, disbanded. And a lot of their property is actually given to the Hospitallers because they did similar things. And so a lot of the property that had belonged to that order gets signed over to the Hospitallers when the Templars are disbanded. Can so I, there's, can a, I, there's a connection. Can I ask real quick if you know why they were disbanded? Not that it's relevant at all. I'm just interested. It's... It's a very, very complicated story. Um, so there's, like, issues with um, the French king being jealous of the amount of power they had. Um, the French king also owing them a lot of money, which he didn't want to pay back. Um, them kind of getting very... Like, they, much more than the Hospitallers, they got really into sort of the secret society type stuff, it seems like. Like, mm. they had a lot more, like, special insider stuff. Uh, which is cool, and I'm all about inside rituals and whatnot, but it also means the people on the outside are going to be more suspicious of you. Right, that's true. When okay, you kind of have, have a more developed, like, specific uh, practices and whatnot. Anyway, that's really complicated. <laughs> I just wanted to talk about uh, National Treasure, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, the Hospitallers, the Knights of St. John, initially... Um, have to move to Cyprus. That's the first place that takes them in. Uh, Cyprus is, of course, an island in the eastern Mediterranean. But uh, they soon realized it wasn't going to work out in the long term because Cyprus was a pretty unstable kingdom and different factions in, you know, different royal family members and whatnot were trying to get the knights to help them against rivals and sort of draw them into the petty politics of this little kingdom and the grandmaster of the order at that time knew that if he didn't like find a new place and get the knights off there um it'd be really hard to preserve the order and its sort of international mission if they got caught up in the like petty dynastic politics of cyprus uh, that makes a lot of sense, but and it also makes sense that uh, people would see this this sort of independent power structure of some kind and want to essentially leverage it for their motivation or their motives and uh, um, interests. That that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. Who who would do that? I have no idea. <laughs> yep. So as it happens, uh, off the southwestern coast of Asia Minor is, that's Turkey, modern day, is a very nice little island called Rhodes, which has good farmland and is very strategically located along trade and travel routes through the eastern Mediterranean. Okay. And it, it was a part of the Byzantine Empire at this point. But by the beginning of the 14th century, things were not going great for the Byzantines, and various lands were constantly changing hands and being conquered and being taken back and then being promised to someone else in exchange for their help in helping the, their help with the Byzantines taking back some other place. Like, Byzantine possessions are constantly in flux at this time. Um, so at one point, this island, Rhodes, had actually been granted as a fiefdom to some Genoese nobles in exchange for their naval service to the empire. And um, through various things of this process and everything changing hands, eventually it's not, not in possession of the Genoese nobles anymore. And the Byzantines have stopped recognizing their right to it, even though with like the original deal, they should have still had the right. Maybe, you know, the Genoese say they still had the right to control it. The Byzantines say they didn't. I mean, it's that kind of deal. Uh -huh. But that's how that was happening. The Genoese no longer had control of it and the Byzantines were ruling it directly. But the Genoese still maintained that they had a legal right to that island and that the Greeks were unjustly depriving them of it. Hold on. Hold on. Yeah. Have you have you played Age of Empires 3? Oh, yeah. Okay, isn't there a Hospitaller that you control in that game? 
Uh, like yes, the, the, f- the, the prologue of that game is the battle that the second half of this episode is going to be about. Oh, well, let's not spoil anything then. Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, no, that's very true. The main the main character is a Hospitaller. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it is pretty cool. But anyway, so as they say, a, um, a nice house in hand is worth an island in the bush. So <laughs> this... Uh, this Genoese nobleman who currently claims to have the legal right to this island, Vignolo di Vignoli, I know, not very creative <laughs> with the first last name thing. Uh, but anyway, he writes up a legal contract with the Knights Hospitaller, signing over to them his legal claim to Rhodes in exchange for getting a portion of the island's revenue and the right to keep an estate on Rhodes and keep possession of a nearby little island that kind of was part of the package with Rhodes. Uh, oh, once the Hospitallers that... took Rhodes, of course. Right, right. It's uh, He's working himself out a nice little deal here. He's just... Yeah, because it's like, you know, it's great to, like, say I have a legal right to control this whole island, but if you can't take the island... Right. What good's it do you? But if there's some people who can, it, you know, it makes sense to be like, okay, you can have the right to the island as long as you take it and I get, you know, this smaller thing. And I get a little private island with a resort and, like, a hot tub and shit. Yeah, exactly. I know what he's after. Exactly, yeah. So, it's a, it's a long story. Um, it ends up taking the Hospitallers a long time to take Rhodes. Um, but, eventually, it all worked out, and the Order took Rhodes and kicked the Byzantines out, and they set up their international headquarters there. And, boy, they were Hello. busy. They were busy. Within a few years, you know, they'd got the whole operation set up. Uh, They'd gotten a new main hospital. Um, They'd moved everything over from Cyprus. They had invited settlers from around Europe to come move to Rhodes because its population was way smaller than the island uh, could support. And the island had a lot of rich farmland, and so it just wasn't being used its potential. So they were bringing in settlers to take advantage of the, the island's, you know, productivity and they also began to assert themselves as a naval power um cuz they'd Uh-oh. been you know they'd been out in the holy land fighting with the you know the crusader states uh for centuries but now that they're just on this little island they're not really going to be a land power anymore since they're on an island so they really assert themselves as a naval power they enforce western trade embargoes with uh with powers in the east such as the egyptian sultanate and uh they sort of sail around and fight pirates and uh, like <laughs> confiscate uh, merchant ships that are trying to break the trade restriction and like you know sell weapons and stuff to Muslim powers, which pretty much everyone in power in Europe had agreed we're not going to do that. But you know merchants are merchants, and some people would try to do that anyway. And so the hospitallers would patrol and often arrest um, merchants. You know mostly Italians. Let's be real. Um, <laughs> They'd arrest merchants who were trying to, you know, run the blockade, so to speak. That's, uh, that sounds like a, a job that needed to be done. I mean, um, oh shit, I lost my point. You better just keep going. <laughs> that's, that's fine. That's fine. Anyway, so they also had a pretty constant naval war going on with various powers, especially, uh, Turkish and North African Muslim rulers who had really taken advantage of the collapse of Byzantine power to engage in piracy and slave raiding all over the Mediterranean. And, uh, with the Knights of St. John on the high seas from their base in Rhodes, piracy, which had been growing, like, pretty much unchecked for centuries, had its first real setback. Like, no one had really been fighting pirates for a long Uh. time before them. 
And well, the warrior good. monks, yeah, the warrior <laughs> monks held this line on roads for centuries, fighting pirates, assisting crusading armies when they could, and generally just being an obstacle to Turkish ex Turkish expansions. Uh, but before we go any further, I want to take a one moment here to address something about all this, and that something is slavery. Oh fuck, we're getting dark, aren't we? Um, I mean, just a, just a tiny bit. Uh, so the Knights freed tons and tons of slaves from Turkish and North African uh, pirate slavers. However, they did also take slaves from those they fought because uh, ransoming back captives was a big source of their income and they needed a lot of income to run their operations. And they also used captured pirates um, on farms in roads to grow crops for the order and sometimes as rowers on their ships, which was a really sucky job and was usually a punishment if you were, you know, like, did something bad when you were already a slave. Sure. Um, however, um, you know, obviously their use of slaves and taking of slaves was nothing near the scale that was happening under the Ottomans. In fact, many, if not most, of the rowers on all the Turkish warships were Christian slaves. I see. So they're just, I mean, I would interpret that with without the context of... They're doing it, so why don't we do it? Um, you know, I, I don't know. That's that's a touchy one. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's not pretty, but uh, very little in history is when you take the magnifying glass to it. Though, yeah. uh, to get a little bit of perspective, I just want to talk about the scale of uh, enslavement of Europeans happening by North African and Turkish pirates. Um, I was doing research into this, and we're probably talking an average of over 10,000 people a year oh. being enslaved with slave raids going as far as Iceland. Did you know that Turkish slavers raided Iceland? I did not know that. Yeah. Oh. So this is a huge deal. Um, and you know, the Ottomans actually had a continued a slave trade until the fall of the Ottoman empire after world war one. Yeah. So yeah, there's just not a lot of sympathy for me if Turks end up as uh, rowing slaves on hospitaler <laughs> ships. Well, I, I would say, uh, I would say, uh, yeah, I actually did know that they still had their slave trade, like, all the way through World War One or whatever. Um, and that's one of those things that you just sort of tuck away in the back of your mind. You're like, nope, don't want to think about that. That's, uh, it's pretty awful. Um, so yeah, I get it. I get it. And, you know, yeah, that's, that's yeah, all I'm going to say. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, so back to the story. Um, so the knights on Rhodes uh, withstood two invasions in the 15th century, one by the Sultan of Egypt in 1444 and another by the Ottoman Sultan Mehmet the Conqueror in 1480. Now, he's the one who captured Constantinople and destroyed the last remnants of the Byzantine Empire. Hmm. And so after he did that, uh, the knights on Rhodes were actually his number one target. But even though he did an invasion, he did not succeed in taking this island, which was merely 11 miles from the mainland of his mighty empire. Rhodes oh. is 11 miles off the coast of Turkey. Holy shit. And he couldn't yeah. get it, huh? And so it's a constant thorn in the side of his expansion because, you know, they're raiding his ships and, uh, you know, ambushing people like and they're right there, right by his mainland. Oh, what a what an insult. Oh, yeah. And so here's another fun fact. Um, there were actually some Hospitaller knights uh, fighting at the Battle of Kosovo in 1389, which is we talked about in the Skanderbeg episode. So they're like all over wherever they're wherever you can fight the Ottomans. They're there. <laughs> well, they know what they're about. Okay, so that finally takes us back to uh, the man of the hour, Jean de Lavalette, who had just joined the order in 1514 
and left France. And as it actually turns out, uh, Jean, that descendant of generations of French knights, would never again see his family home or even any of France itself. He never returned to France after uh, leaving for the first time. Wow. Uh, hella. And this was in uh, 1514, you said? Um, That's right. Okay, so this this uh, this either does not bode well or bodes very well indeed. We will see. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, the way that the Knights of St. John were organized internally was that they were divided into what are called... Uh, langs which is uh it's you know the french word for tongue so it means language and each different uh european region from which knights came had a lang so there was a one for italy one for the holy roman empire one for england etc uh france actually had multiple langs since the different regions of france had retained very strong regional identity and language and there were also just a lot of knights and so they sort of had multiple provinces and our lavalette here was part of the lang of provence which is in southern France. Cool. So just a few years after joining, uh, Lavalette was with the Grand Master of the Order on Rhodes in 1522 to face the biggest invasion yet. Because remember, they've been trying to take Rhodes, uh, the Ottomans have, for centuries. Mm -hmm. Well, in 1522, Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent landed almost 200,000 men on Rhodes to face approximately 600 knights and about 6,000 auxiliary troops. Holy shit, 200,000? Between one and 200,000, you know, everyone's sort of numbers are different, but between right. one and 200,000. Uh, that's, um, that's insane. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. Jesus. So, the Grand Master of the Order, uh, Philippe Villiers, uh, he commanded the defense, and the knights held out for six months of daily attacks and near-constant shelling by Ottoman cannons, before finally agreeing to surrender in exchange for the safe conduct uh, out of the island for the surviving knights, and he also negotiated that any of the civilians who lived on the island would also be free to leave if they would rather leave than accept Turkish rule. So, like, he worked out a quite a good deal, which just shows how fiercely the def you know the defenders had held out that he's able to negotiate terms like that. Yeah, I'm also wondering about the the guy who. Uh gave the island to the hospitalers they'll be dead at this point right yeah that was you know 250 years before yeah well i was so. gonna say he'd be pretty disappointed to lose his little resort to the ottomans yeah <laughs> <laughs> so of the approximately you know 7,000 ish defenders more than 5,000 were dead on the other side the turks had lost somewhere between 60 and 100,000 troops holy fuck so if the low estimates uh are on the actual number of them are are correct then he lost his entire army <laughs> yeah so it's it's a lot it was a very costly i mean it was a six month siege jesus so. christ wow so after uh, after several years of uh, sort of uncertainty because you know they had lost their headquarters in jerusalem which is why they ended up on roads and now they've lost their headquarters there and so the order doesn't really have a, a place anymore the pope was able to broker an agreement with the king of spain in 1530, uh, that the King of Spain would give the island of Malta, right in the central Mediterranean, to the order as their new headquarters in exchange for the symbolic annual rent of one falcon. Which, this is, you know, a one Maltese falcon. That's why um, 
Maltese Falcon becomes a phrase, and like you have that uh, that Humphrey Bogart movie mm-hmm. with the statue of a falcon. Yeah, this is what why Maltese Falcon sort of became a uh, a thing people would recognize because of this contract. Okay, wait. So, what's this about exchanging the rent of a, a falcon? Did he have like a little apartment yeah. or what? No, no. They uh, it, the rent wasn't tallied up in um you know in dollars or tootsie rolls like we would do it it was uh it was tallied up in birds and it was one one bird like a year yes every year they had to send him one bird (laughs) it was a as i said it was a symbolic thing because the the king of spain wasn't like a hundred percent coming out and saying I'm giving you the island mm-hmm. because he, you know, was still going to technically remain part of his empire, but he wasn't going to actually charge them for its use. So it was a symbolic rent that every year they had to send him a bird, and that was the <laughs> rent they paid for the island. What did he do with these birds? I'm sure. I, he... You know, I don't know. Oh my I don't god, know. <laughs> that's hilarious. That is way funnier than than it was at face value. Which... <laughs> <laughs> So there you go. That's uh, just, why Maltese Falcons are important. That's okay. That's good to know. <laughs> Extremely important detail there. Clear, <laughs> clearly. Anyway, as soon as the order had uh, gotten its new base up and running on Malta, it was uh, back to fighting pirates and helping European efforts against the Turks and just generally sort of being up to its old tricks, you know, mm. like you do. In addition to Malta, the grant had also included a couple other sort of scattered Mediterranean bases, including Tripoli in Libya, which had been a very important uh, stronghold of the uh, Barbary pirates, that is the the North African Muslim pirates, uh, before the Spanish took it from them. Um, And the grant included the knights were supposed to take care of this place as well. Pirates of Tripoli just doesn't have the same ring as, uh, as Pirates of the Caribbean, I must say. Well, I mean, it was one of America's first wars was against Barbary pirates. What? Yeah, it's like, that was one of America's, might even have been America's first foreign war was against the Barbary pirates. For uh, real? I think Tom, Thomas Jefferson was president, yeah. Like, haven't you ever heard the U.S. Marine Corps hymn? Uh, oh, yeah, to yeah. The shor- to the shores of Tripoli? That's this. Oh, shit, really? I didn't know that. Huh. Yeah, cool. no, because um, they were still being pirates at that point and they were preying on american ships and they had like 700 americans in slavery and so thomas jefferson actually invaded north africa shit you just don't think about yeah (laughs) anyway that's uh that's that's off topic (laughs) that's fine that's fine (laughs) so tripoli in libya is where lavalette ends up as the governor of that little little stronghold and he spends a few years there um, trying to trying to keep order. Of course, they're surrounded by hostile territory on all sides because they've just got like sort of these little coastal enclaves. And right. so the you know the knights built walls and did their best to sort of keep the city running smoothly. And also Lavalette tried to instill military discipline in the garrison since you know they're constantly at risk of pirate attack. And you know you've got to have uh, you've got to have good good defenders to maintain order. Right. You got to keep your guys in ship shape, you might say. Yep. <laughs> ship shape, exactly. And the the pirate they were most at risk from was a man named Turgut Race, mm. who was the Ottoman naval commander of the Mediterranean and he a pirate warlord who he would actually later be called the uncrowned king of the Mediterranean because he 
basically terrorized the entire Mediterranean for like 50 years. Jeez. You know, burning coastal cities, raiding places, taking slaves. Like he was a he he was like one of the most terrifying people on earth to uh you know to anyone who lived within slaving distance, which as we found out with Iceland is a really pretty big distance. Yeah, clearly um that uh, was being the, called I was what? gonna say the ice the Iceland thing wasn't till the next century, but you know, they are going all over the place at this point as well. Yeah, I'm so surprised by that though. Like I did not know that, that they went to Iceland. Jeez. Yep. Things you don't think about. All right. <laughs> Indeed. So uh, despite, you know, Lavalette's uh, experience and ability as a leader, because he was a, he was already a very respected commander, uh, it turns out he also did have a little bit of a temper problem. And in 1538, even though he was still the governor of the city of Tripoli, he was disciplined by the order for getting into a fist fight. I could not find who he had a fist fight with. I looked, I wanted to know, but I could not find who he got into a fist fight with. Just that he got into a fist fight and the order disciplined him by making him spend four months in their prison on Malta. Jeez, you weren't kidding which, about the whole discipline thing. Yeah, um, which is, yeah, that's he's literally, you know, the governor of one of their cities and he's, he's in the clink. Well, for getting into a fist fight, I mean, what kind of governor do you want? One who does get into fist fights or one who avoids fist fights? I don't know. I, yeah, I kind of want one who does, but yeah. maybe that's just me. <laughs> in any case, by uh, in 1541, he was no longer governor, but had been transferred to doing active naval military duty um, against the Turks. He was the commander of a ship called the San Giovanni, and he was involved in the anti-piracy campaigns, you know, fighting North African pirate slavers all along the coast. Mm -hmm. But in 1541, he was in an engagement with a Turkish pirate, Abd ur-Rahman Kust Ali. Um, How did you he... do that? <laughs> <laughs> I know, liter literacy still shocks Aaron. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Lavalette was uh, seriously injured uh, during this battle, and his ship was captured with the injured Lavalette still on it. Oh, shit. Yeah, oh. and that's the cliffhanger where I think we should stop for our honorable mention. Oh, it was just starting to get really good. Oh, oh. And now I have to take the reins and teach you something about honorable mentions or whatever. Um, <laughs> and now a word from our sponsors. I was going to say, <laughs> like, rate, subscribe for pirates. All right. Um. <laughs> so... <clears throat> For those of you who don't know, and that's probably very few unless you're very new, the honorable mentions section of the show is dedicated to something that we found in our research that wasn't quite long enough for a full episode, but was still interesting enough to tell you about on here. And, George, this week's honorable mention is entitled Stephen Bloomberg. Is he the one who runs the news website? No, different Bloomberg, and it's spelled oh. Blumberg. Um... And uh, it's, it's a crazy story. All right, so here we go. <clears throat> Stephen Bloomberg was an ordinary man, if you can call anyone ordinary. I'll stop doing the voice. We know little <laughs> about him, uh, at least from what I could find online, because uh, he's not even he's not really that big of a deal, but he's kind of a big deal in his own way. Um, in my usual insane forays into the depths of the internet, I discovered a report of a man who was known for things that I only wish I could be known for. Stephen Bloomberg was a man who sought to preserve the past, just as we do on this show. But it wasn't just for, 
uh, preserved within the memory or on some dumb podcast, but Stephen Bloomberg wanted to preserve history IRL. Now, Stephen Bloomberg never had to work. He lived on a $72,000 a year uh, trust fund provided for him by his family, which is pretty sweet, I must say. I wish I wish uh, I had one yeah, of those. Yeah, that's a, that's a hell of a deal if you can get it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it might have been better for him to have to get a job because because he wasn't so busy, he started to, uh, started to do some things. Um, he lived in this uh, beautiful town in Minnesota known as St. Paul, and he was born in the year 1948. <clears throat> and in this town, St. Paul, Stephen began to notice something from a young age. And one of the, th the thing he noticed was that all the old houses were just gorgeous. They were beautiful. They were constructed in a winding, ornate Victorian fashion. And uh, all the new buildings that were going up around him were just plain, boring boxes. Um, and Stephen began to notice some other things as well. This is a real person, by the way. I know this sounds like I'm making this up, but Stephen began to notice a few other things as well. Specifically that the boxes were being built up really fast, but the old Victorian homes were starting to wear down. Uh, and many of them were eventually destroyed uh, so that more boxes could be built. So... <laughs> I mean, he's he's literally right. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's why I think he's kind of a legend. But anyway, so Stephen had a plan to combat this. One day as he was walking along home, he realized that nobody was living in these run-down Victorian, Victorian homes. He could just take them, or pieces of them. Specifically, doorknobs. Uh, he stole the doorknobs and some windows from a ton of these houses. True story. This was like okay. Well, I mean, I mean, props to him. Stealing windows is hard. Oh yeah, and they were like fancy stained glass ones, and he he never broke them. You know, he was very careful with this with this stuff that he was uh, interested in preserving. But speaking of things that Stephen was interested in preserving. Uh, there's, there's another very large thing. Um, from a very young age, Stephen was what's called a bibliophile. Um, and all that means is that he just really, really, and I mean really, loved books. I mean, don't we all? Yeah, I know you do, but, like, a bibliophile is not like a, a, a biblio, uh, I, I, enthusiast. He's like a bibliophile, someone who's got to have the fucking books right now, and all of them all at once. Um, but this was all tied up with the fact, so he really liked books, he really liked old stuff, like Victorian doorknobs. Um, so one day, while he was perusing the, the architecture of his hometown and watching it turn into shoeboxes, he found himself wandering into the library at the University of Minnesota and it was like Disneyland for this man. Everywhere, all over, books, 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 and rare ones, too. Rare old books that you can request. My, my favorite kind. I know. I, I think I've asked you this, but what's the oldest book you've ever handled? I mean, I've handled... It depends what you, how you want to define a book. I mean, you know, I've handled papyrus from 2,300 years ago. Uh, but I've handled book books from the 1100s. Damn. Uh, the oldest book I've ever held was, uh, um, the Bible. Anyway, so, <laughs> he does, <laughs> Stephen Bloomberg sees all this going on. He's Assigned like, uh, copy. <laughs> what? Assigned copy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Signed by God. So, anyway, Stephen Bloomberg does what he did with the doorknobs, and he just starts taking these things home. Um, and he keeps them forever. 
<laughs> so, um, and he doesn't, and he doesn't stop with the University of, uh, of Minnesota. Uh, no, Stephen Bloomberg, throughout the course of his criminal career, uh, proceeded to go on a book-stealing spree, uh, that went through two Canadian provinces, 45 American states, and Washington, D.C. The Hall? 23,600 rare and ancient books valued at $20 million altogether. So I guess he made more than one trip. Uh, yeah, he <laughs> he didn't pick them all up at once, no. Um, his house was beginning to look like the, uh, the library from, uh, what, what's that movie? Doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. So he, he his whole his whole thing was he like basically traveled across the country, well two countries, and uh, just would go into universities, ask to see the rare books, pick them up, and walk out. And nobody like thought any like they were like, wait where'd the book go? I gave it to that guy and now he's gone. Like nobody's supposed to steal books. Um, so uh, he only got caught in the end of this because his friend turned turned him in for thirty pieces of silver provided by the FBI. Um, his, Disgusting. I know. His friend was also a criminal, but they were like, hey, like, you know, do you know the guy who's stealing all these books? And he's like, yes, I do. And they're like, here's 30 pieces of silver, Judas. Um, so Stephen Blueberg was indeed arrested. And when he was in interviewed, um, he reported to them that he was stealing these books because he was worried about two things. One, he was worried about what happened to the architecture in his town. And he was saying that was going to happen to books, and eventually, like, the old books were going to be lost and mishandled, and the other situation was, like, a Fahrenheit 411 situation where the government burned or withheld these books from the public on purpose. Um, so his, his mission was allegedly to protect the knowledge of the ancients from eventual destruction, uh, just as he had protected the Victorian doorknobs from their eventual de demise. <clears throat> So, uh, he claimed he never had any plans to sell these books, or even the doorknobs for that matter. Uh, in fact, he said to do such a thing would be basically sacrilegious. Uh, he claimed he just wanted to protect them so that after he died, they could eventually be returned to their rightful owners, um, hopefully to be preserved on a uh, more molecular level than, say, in a library that could just be torched or whatever. Um, Nonetheless, it seems that Stephen's mission was curtailed uh, completely when he was arrested and charged with grand theft. Sad. Uh, he was found guilty and served just over four years in prison uh, for his service to posterity. Uh, unfortunately, this crime did actually have some negative effects on the library system, aside from it being like a hilariously amazing thing to do, steal a bunch of books to preserve them for humanity um, because you're paranoid and whatever. Um, it's now harder to obtain permission to view rare books at universities, uh, since these thefts actually showed the absolute gaping holes in security. And secondly, it sort of ruined the fun for a lot of librarians. Here's a quote from John L. Sharp III of Duke University's library system. Uh, quote. What I felt was that we in libraries have to operate on a trust system every time we bring a book to someone's table. This is what I think is so sinister about the whole thing. This man chose to debase that, to debase that commodity that is so essential in gathering information in an open institution. And I think he betrayed everything that we try to represent in making information available as freely and as uninhibitedly as possible. And I think that's what really just enraged me, to think that this man took advantage of that kind of access. End quote. <laughs> uh, whose side are you on, George? 
Well, I mean, everyone probably has a point. Uh, right now, about eight feet behind me is a bookshelf, which is filled entirely with books that were going to be incinerated by the university library they were held in before somebody took them and gave them to me. So, you know, it's not impossible right? what he's saying. Like, there's, you know, as I said, you know, I can see, I can see everyone's point here. Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm joking around and saying stuff like, ah, well, he, he did the thing that nobody wanted to do and stole the books to protect them from, you know, evil people or, you know, um, eventual complete decay or whatever. I don't know. Um, it is an extreme measure, that's for sure, to just go and steal them. Uh, and, of course, he did this because he was a, a bibliophile and a criminal. Um, but I get it, you know? I think I understand it because... It's exactly like you said. People just go, oh, it's old. We can't use it anymore. And then just throw it away. Um, thankfully, these days, we have digital archives of a lot of books in, uh, in uh, well, online um, from universities all over the world. I peruse them every now and then when we, uh, well, when I want to find a really, really weird and out there story. Um, so perhaps Stephen Bloomberg was a bit too hasty in the actions that he thought would save the past. Or perhaps he was just ahead of his time. Either way, he was diagnosed 12 separate times with schizophrenia, paranoia, and uh, with generally being delusional. Um, but the best thing he got out of the whole deal was a nickname. He was named The Book Bandit. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just really like books and wanted to preserve them just as he preserved the Victorian doorknobs. <laughs> nice. Well, I I learned something today because I'd never heard about him. Yeah, I had I hadn't heard of him either, and I, I just saw the word I saw the two words book bandit, and I'm like, yup, clicking on that. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, thank you, Aaron. Uh, you're welcome. I don't even think he's dead yet, so he might be listening to this right now. And if you're listening, Stephen, we salute you, sir. <laughs> no, we should we should write letters to him. Oh God, no! <laughs> he starts getting fan mail. Hi, I run a stupid podcast, and I, we talked about your book banditry. He'd probably just steal the letter. <laughs> <laughs> it's the perfect crime. All right, so uh, now that we've finished up with that ridiculous story, uh, I think it's time to get back to Lavalette. La yes, yes, indeed. So when we left Lavalette, he was injured and captured by Muslim pirates off the coast of North Africa. Well, those pirates, like, as we said, most at that time, were subject to the Ottoman admiral and basically pirate king, Turgut Race. So, Lavalette ends up as a slave, working as a rower um, on one of Turgut's warships. So he's, he's on the benches as a galley slave, which is considered the worst type of slave you can be. Wow, even surviving, like, I don't know, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, no, very high mortality rate. So he survived his injuries and then is a, ga a galley slave. And he spends over a year oh, shit. as a slave in an Ottoman galley. Well, that's a tough year, I'll tell you what. Ugh. Yeah, and as I said, a lot of people died as galley slaves. Very high mortality rate, but not Lavalette. Instead of dying, our boy learned fluent Arabic and Turkish from his captors and fellow slaves. In addition to the languages he already knew, which were French, Italian, Spanish, Greek, and Latin. Holy shit. So now he's got fluent Arabic and Turkish as well. So this is this is a pretty smart dude. I would say so. Yeah. Finally, after, as I said, over a year, he was released as part of a prisoner exchange with the Order. Um, 
they released some captured pirates, and in exchange, some Christian slaves were released. Gotcha. They did that a lot. Um, yeah. As you can imagine, being a galley slave did not really give Lavalette any new warm feelings towards the Ottomans or their Barbary pirate vassals. I should think not. Yep. And so for the next several years, Lavalette was back at it on the high seas, fighting pirates, raiding Ottoman shipping, rescuing Christian captives, you know, the whole deal. And he was getting pretty famous for his abilities as a naval commander. Good for him. He's back on track. Yeah. He's back. Yeah, I mean, I guess a year spent in the galleys is gonna gonna give you some time to get stuff sorted out. I bet he missed that uh, prison on Malta a little bit. <laughs> Pro- probably, yeah. <laughs> so, um, his reputation grew so much that in 1554 he was selected as captain general of the Order's warships. So he was going to be the naval commander of all the Knights of St. John's ships, not just the captain of one ship. Wow, cool. And this was a really big deal uh, for him as a knight of the Lang of Provence to do that, because throughout most of the Order's history, the position of, you know, of Grand Admiral was usually held by a knight of the Italian Lang, uh, since, you know, that's the place that sticks out into the Mediterranean, right. where all the ships are. And uh, the contract with the King of Spain, you know, the Malta, the Maltese Falcon one, had actually stipulated that preference should be given for having an Italian knight be in charge of the ships. It didn't say you had to have it, but the contract says preference should be given to having an Italian. I don't really know why the King of Spain cared. I didn't look into that. Uh, that's, uh, that's very interesting, but here's my theory about all of this. The fact that Lavalette um, was selected and he's not an Italian. I'm thinking he might have slipped that Maltese falcon, a little uh, little mouse or something, and said, hey, whisper in the king's ear while he's hanging out with you. You can tell the other falcons to say the same. <laughs> uh, just tell him I want to be commander now. <laughs> so the falcon must have spoken one of those languages. Interesting. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> Anyway, it is, uh, it's pretty significant, and it, it really attests to Lavalette's reputation that he's the one who's selected for this post. Right. That's the, that's the takeaway. Sure. So, under Lavalette uh, as Admiral, the order continued to be a real pain in the ass for the Sultan, and just, they were nonstop working to counter Ottoman expansion, you know, right. doing, the, doing their thing. And the Sultan was really not, not thrilled with this, especially since, if you think about it, it had only been a few decades since the Knights had been ejected from Rhodes at, you know, the cost of like 50,000 troops lost. Yeah. And, you know, he thought, okay, you know, they'll bugger off to the other side of the Mediterranean you know, won't have to worry about them for a while because they'll need, you know, a long time to rebuild. But just a couple decades later, and, you know, they're back at it again. Yep. Can't stop them. Yep. Can't stop, won't stop. I was going to say, can't stop the hosp, the hot. I don't know. Can't, never mind. <laughs> can't <laughs> so, stop um, the hosp. That's not funny. In, All right, carry on. <laughs> in 1557, uh, the Grandmaster of the Order, Claude de la Sanglée, uh, died. And the mood was pretty tense with the Knights of Malta, um, which is what they're sometimes called once they move to Malta. So Knights of Malta, Knights of St. John, Knights Hospitaller, all the same thing. Anyway, gotcha. um, everyone was pretty sure that Rhodes 2.0 was going to happen soon because it was no secret how much they were pissing off the Sultan. Yeah. So in order to give themselves the best chance when they had to square off with the Sultan, they elected the most capable military commander in the order, 
you got it, Jean Parisot de Lavalette as the Grand Master of the Order. And in oh. fact, uh, the election was actually unanimous. He was unanimously elected as 49th Grand Master of the Order of the Knights of St. John. That makes sense, because, you know, their primary enemy is going to be coming from the sea, so you want a guy who's thinking in terms of ocean and pirates and, you know, fuck those Ottomans, you know? <laughs> Yep. See, and that's one reason I really wanted to find out who he got into a fistfight with, because if it was like a fellow knight, that would mean that, you know, that guy probably voted for him anyway. That would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, but I could not find if it was a knight or someone else, so. Oh, man. I don't know. Well, yeah, no, that, was a, that was a real letdown. He would have earned his respect, I guess. Um, yep. Plus, like, you probably cut a guy some slack after he spends a year as a galley slave on a Turkish warship. Yeah, I, I guess that, that, uh. That would get you a little slack. <laughs> yep. Yep. So Lavalette is Grandmaster, and he knew that he had work to do. Uh, he did his best to shore up alliances with European kingdoms, especially Habsburg, Spain, uh, which was really one of the only naval powers that had any chance against the Ottoman Empire. And, of course, were technically the owners of Malta, uh, even if they, you know, had an understanding that they were never going to ask for it back. So in, uh, in 1560, actually, a Christian alliance of Spain, Genoa, Naples, Venice, and the Order uh, faced off against Turgut race and the Ottoman navy off the coast of Tunisia. Hang on, on that list of allies in there, you forgot to list the Falcon. And a boat of Falcons. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> so unfortunately, uh, the divided command of the Christian fleet because you've got all these different nations and they didn't, they had not agreed on like a command structure meant that different parts were pursuing different objectives and there wasn't really a cohesive battle plan. So with terrifying efficiency, Turgut races, pirate fleet overwhelmed the Christians and uh, they sunk how over half the fleet in just a matter of a few hours. Shit. That didn't go so hot. And yeah, more probably would have been sunk. Um, if it hadn't been for Lavalette, because he really effectively used the Order's warships in a sort of a rescue operation to cover the retreat of other galleys and to rescue Christian ships that had been cut off and were being pursued by the Turks. So, like, it probably would have been even more disastrous if it hadn't been for his capable commanding. Well, you know what I think? I don't think it was Turgut race at all. I think these Christians just didn't keep their eyes on Jesus, so they sank. Ha! That's a Bible joke, everybody. You, you okay. get it? Did I, did I say that well enough? <laughs> is, is this some sort of joke I'm not Protestant enough to understand? No, there's, it's, there's <laughs> this, the the, uh, the scene with the, the disciple who looks at Jesus and he steps out onto the water and when he looks away, he starts to sink. So if the Christian ships were sinking, they took their eyes off of Jesus. Never mind, I'm not funny today. <laughs> I don't remember Peter starting to sink. Wasn't that Peter? Yeah. Was it? I don't remember him starting to sink. Anyway, yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, he looks, he looks away. He's like amazed. I'm walking on water. So he looks down at his feet and he starts to sink. And when he looks back up, he can walk on water again. That's that's a very obscure oh. joke, I guess. I for, I forgot that part of the story. Read your Bible, paper scum. <laughs> <laughs> Never. <laughs> Any anyway, uh, so Lavalette's heroism notwithstanding, uh, with the Spanish fleet broken and Ottoman control of Tunisia secured since the you know invasion had completely failed. There was now nothing standing between the Sultan and the desolate, rocky little island of Malta. And Lavalette knew it. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, he knew that there was going to be a reckoning. 
And so in addition to his military activities, he was also working really hard to get the internal affairs of the order sorted out so that he could, you know, effectively use the potential of the organization. Gotcha. Because, like, over the past century, parts of the order around Europe had gotten increasingly independent-minded, and in some places they'd kind of begun operating pretty much outside the authority of the Grand Master, just kind of like, yeah, we're kind of our own thing, we're technically still part of the order, but, you know, we don't really talk to everyone else outside our, you know, one, like, chapter house. Yeah. And yeah, a few decades before, at the Siege of Rhodes, when, you know, Philip Villiers had had uh, led the Knights, uh, many parts of the order in Europe had actually ignored his request for more troops for the defense. Uh, and that's one reason that he, you know, didn't have that many knights, is because whole parts of the order were kind of out of touch with each other. And Lavalette knew that this was not going to fly. Mm. He needed, you know, as much strength as he could get. Mm. So he wrangled to get all the parts of the order working together again and had a lot of success, actually. He quickly uh, brought the chapters in Germany and Venice back into the, the, you know, constant communication and working with the main organization. And he also took in at Malta a lot of knights from parts of the order whose nations had become Protestant. Hmm. Because uh, that's kind I... of a weird... What? I was going to say, that kind of puts you in a weird position, you know? Uh, me? No, if you're a knight <laughs> of one of... If you're a monastic knight in a nation that becomes Protestant. Oh, yeah, that is an awkward position. I was going to say something... Uh, um, let's see, where, what, what was this? Oh, yeah, so it, it takes... It, I don't know, like, it's it's certainly a testament to his negotiate negotiation powers, basically, to get all these people back together. But I just wanted to point out, like, I think this is pretty much what a common enemy will do for a, uh, a, uh, separated, uh, order like this. If they say, guys, we need you back because the Sultan is gonna come, and we're basically the thing that pisses him off the most, so if you want us, you know, to basically lose and die, um, he's gonna turn to you next. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, that's well, I would I it makes sense, but I don't think that's quite accurate, because like if you're, you know, running whatever the order's doing in Germany, you're not in any immediate danger. Like if Malta gets destroyed, you can just kind of keep doing your thing in Germany. Like, I think it's really a testament to Lavalette's leadership that he's able to bring these parts of the order that aren't immediately threatened together. All right. Fair enough. I was just speculating anyway. Um, that's. Anyway, so back to the back to the Protestantism thing. Oh God! So yeah, because you know the knights are all over Europe, including uh, like England. Oh okay. You know which had the English Reformation has happened. You know in this past generation from this time. Right. So it it puts military monastic orders in a tricky position. Um, usually, what happens is that the structure of the order in a country or region just ends up becoming basically a Protestant noble's fiefdom uh, because, you know, some people in the order are willing to become Protestant and so one of them ends up just becoming the count of such and such and the order's sort of holdings and administration become his, like, noble dynasty. And those knights who were willing to become Protestant would pretty much just keep on in the same place just now as secular nobles instead of warrior monks. Meanwhile, those who would be like, hell no, I'm not doing that. I'm not joining this whole new Protestant dynasty. They would usually have to leave and find refuge with their fellow knights elsewhere in parts of Europe that were still Catholic. Gotcha. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah, so, like, in Germany, you had places where, like, parts of the order 
would um, break off and just become like a Protestant, you know, little fiefdom. Huh. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it's uh, it's tricky. Um. So he takes in a lot of knights from around Europe who'd had to leave their, uh, you know, their original place with the order because they'd switched over to Protestantism. I see. Yep. So so this is this is you're you're kind of adding more uh, evidence that he was really good at negotiation. Um, yes. This, yeah. He was a very. I was going to say very skilled. Leader. God, we're talking over each other. I was going to say, he's navigating very difficult waters, you might say. Um, oh, oh, that was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that wasn't even, I wasn't even trying to be funny, but... <laughs> that was the best pun you've said all day. I know, I'm completely out of it. Um, but I'm starting, I'm starting <laughs> to bounce back. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you understand, and you should, if you're, a, if you're a new listener or something like that, you might want to go back and check out some of our episodes that do take place during the... Uh, Protestant Reformation when all of this complicated shit is going down because it was a just an absolute wrench through the window that was uh, any kind of Christendom and unity in, in Western Europe and elsewhere. Um, so yeah, like the fact that he was able to navigate this whole thing uh, is pretty impressive when you really think about it. So. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Yeah. And so in addition to uh, to all this, Lavalette also spent huge amounts of his own family wealth for the defense of Malta, and he outfitted two warships with his family's money, which uh, there was, these warships between the rowers, the crew, and the marines on them probably had about 500 people Jeez. on each ship. And so he's paying for two of these out of his own family's money. Wow, he really wants to protect them falcons, and I can't say yep. I blame him. And he made it very clear as well that he expected knights who came from wealthy families to do the same. Hmm. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Hey, guys, look what I'm doing. I'm spending all my money to defend Malta. You should do the same. Yep. Exactly. Lead by example. So a few years uh, prior to this, uh, so 1551, the Turks had actually planned an invasion of Malta, but they decided that they hadn't brought enough firepower once they got there and that they weren't going to invade. So instead, they landed on an island that's near Malta called Gozo. They burned down everything and enslaved literally the entire population, about 5,000 people, all in chains, taken off the island and sold into slavery in North Africa. Gee whiz. All literally, right, they that's... depopulated an entire island. Oh, God. That's, uh, that's awful. You, you know, empires, man. Empires. Yep. Yeah. Also, it's... I didn't intend this, but I've really like. There's been a lot of uh, a lot of Ottoman stuff lately. Yeah, I, like we've been doing a lot of people who fight the Ottomans. I don't know why I didn't plan it that way. Are you are you a hospitaller secretly? <laughs> it was me the whole time. Damn it! <laughs> I thought you were a I'm Templar. Actually, <laughs> I'm actually an Albanian tribal leader. <laughs> Wouldn't surprise so, me. Yep, yep. <laughs> but for that, you have to listen to the Skanderbeg episode, mm -hmm. which is a great one. Uh, if I might say so myself, you don't have to toot your own horn. I can say it for you. Skanderbeg is a great episode. Thank you for not saying that you can toot my horn, because that would just be really I weird. would never, ever. <laughs> what planet are you from? Oh, God, never mind. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, back, back, on, back on track, back on track. <laughs> so after uh, this had happened, after the neighboring island had literally been entirely depopulated, uh, the knights had built two new fortresses on Malta, Fort St. Michael and Fort St. Elmo, and they had reinforced the original fortress 
which was called Fort St. Angelo, and they'd also extended the fortifications of Medina, which was Malta's ancient capital city, which was uh, inland. It's near the, it's it's not on the coast of Malta. It's in the center, or right. near the center. These are good moves. Yep, yep. Um, and so the uh, to the east of Medina, the capital city, is a mountain, kind of a big rise, called Mount Skibaras. And just off of that is the newly constructed Fort St. Elmo, hmm. uh, which overlooked a sheltered anchorage and the entrance to the island's grand harbor. Because there's really, there's a couple small harbors, but there's only one real big harbor on Malta. And it's very big, like, it's quite large. And uh, there are two peninsulas that stick out into this harbor, and they're called Bergu and Sanglea. And they're literally just jutting out right into the harbor. And on each of those, they built uh, ramparts and walls on the landward entrance, so where the peninsulas come off the mainland, and forts, and so that's the other two forts, at the end of them. So that's a lot of fortification around this harbor, and a lot of fortification for an island that's about 9 by 17 miles in size. Unrelated tangent, but I was playing Age of Mythology with a couple of couple of friends, and uh, we, were, we decided we were going to go against a single opponent uh, in co-op against a Titan uh, difficulty bot, and all that means is it's a hard bot, but every resource is gathered twice as fast. Uh, and basically our strategy was to do exactly this, was to fill a very small area with tons of fortifications and uh, defenses and that sort of thing. It's kind of hilarious how well it works. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to use Age of Mythology to make a prediction about this story, but I'll save it for, I'll keep it to myself for now. <laughs> I, I don't know. I kind of want to hear the prediction now. Uh, they're going to be fine. <laughs> I mean, um, fine isn't exactly the best word, but they will they will be effective. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. So back to back to Malta. I'm sorry. Back to Malta. That's fine. So <laughs> with uh, with three forts all covering different parts of the Grand Harbor, that end of Malta was pretty much one big imposing fortress because they actually had a system of floating walkways that connected the different peninsulas and they had heavy chains that spanned narrow points of the harbor and its entrance, which they could lower to allow boats to pass, but then raise and ships couldn't sail through. Damn. So, like, this harbor is a fortress, because, yeah, they've got walkways and, like, chain walls and mountain, you know, mountain strongholds, like, yeah. So, how how long did they have to prepare all this? Um, so they really started preparing in earnest after the, uh, the you know, destruction of Gozo. So, okay. in 1551 is when they really started preparing, knowing that it's inevitable it's going to happen at some point, but it wasn't until, um just a few years before that they were confident, okay, it's happening soon. Mm-hmm. And so that's when they, uh, they really did everything to make sure they were uh, ready. Kicked it to high gear. All right. Yep. Yep. So in, uh, in August of 1560, so we're still a few years out from the battle, uh, Jean de Lavalette sent out an order to all the uh, priories. There's the, you know, the sort of provincial chapters of the order of the Knights of St. John and the order was that the knights should be ready to return to Malta as soon as the signal goes out. So it's like, be ready, because at some point in the next few years, you know, you're going to get a message and you need to haul ass to Malta. Yeah. 
And he also, uh, he built a bunch of powder mills on Malta to begin just producing and stockpiling gunpowder. So this is five years in advance. He's already starting stockpiling the gunpowder for this. Yeah, so there, you know, cannons were cast, walls were being thickened, forges were running night and day, producing armor and blades. They carved storage caves into the solid rock of cliffs to protect stockpiles of supplies. Like, everyone knew what was coming. That's that's crazy. Oh, man. Yeah, so basically five years of preparation. Mm. And, of course... All this time, however, the work must go on, and Hospitaller ships continued to sail the Mediterranean, raiding and harassing Ottoman shipping, dispatching pirates, expelling Turkish garrisons from North African coastal strongholds. Um, and there was one particular thing. Under uh, a very famous Hospitaller captain named Romegas, the knights ambushed and seized a massive Turkish treasure ship in 1564. So I'm going to guess that the uh, knights seizing a treasure ship from the Turks isn't exactly going to be uh, smiled upon. No, no. And as it turns out, the owner of this treasure ship was a guy named Kustir Aga, who was the chief eunuch of the Sultan's court, uh, which is a really important office. Right. And the merchandise on the ship uh, was valued at about 80,000 ducats. And a ducat is a gold coin, so 80,000 of those... That's a lot of money. Yeah, no shit. And it was also, uh, that property was all owned not only by the chief eunuch, but also a number of the Sultan's wives had property on this ship. So, like, this is, a uh, you know, this is hitting the Sultan's family directly, that they just took 80,000 ducats worth of stuff that belonged to his immediate sort of, uh, you know, associates. Yeah, that demands a response. Yeah. And among the prisoners they took were the governor of Cairo, the the governor of Alexandria, which are both super important cities, and also the former nurse of Suleiman's favorite daughter. So, like, these are, um, you know, these are people who it does not look good to have them being captured. You know, the governors of some of your richest cities. Yeah. And it's, it's you know, it's a, also like a personal affront. You know, these are people that you're close to. Um, yep. Yeah. Yep, and so the uh, the knights made a pretty uh, pretty nice profit uh, ransoming these these prisoners back to the sultan, but they knew that uh, like it was gonna it was gonna it was gonna happen soon. Once this had happened, like they knew they didn't have long before the storm was gonna come. And sure enough, uh, the whole thing enraged Sultan Suleiman so much that he ordered the preparations to be made to finally exterminate the knights of Saint John on their rocky island fortress. It's time. It's time. By early uh, the next year, 1565, Grandmaster Lavalette's network of spies in Constantinople slash Istanbul had informed him that the invasion was imminent, that they were putting it together. So he sends the message and the call goes out all over Europe that the Knights of St. John are to return to Malta to face the Sultan's wrath. Oh my God, it's finally here. Oh my God. Oh, oh Yeah. In March of oh, 1565... Shit. Hold on. Uh, what? You're cutting out again. So, in March of 1565, an Ottoman fleet of about 200 ships carrying a force of probably about 50,000 left Constantinople, headed towards the little tiny island of Malta. 
under the command of, well, a couple people. So there was Peale Pasha, who was the Turkish admiral who led the navy. And then there was Vizier Mustafa Pasha, who led the army. And then there was Turgut Race, the uh, the dread pirate king, who was there as sort of a advisor to everybody. Well, we've heard that name before. It's time he came back. Yep, but uh, yeah, so it is a little bit confused because you've got, like, different leaders, um, and this will be problematic later on. Yeah, I, so, would, yeah. I would guess yep. so. Yep. So Malta, on the other hand, is defended by about 500 knights, about 2,000 uh, European soldiers, mostly Spanish and Italians, who are in the service of the knights, about 3,000 local Maltese militia soldiers, and about 500 galley slaves who the knights released uh, because they volunteered to participate in the defense. Really? Yeah. They didn't want to go back to back to the Ottomans? Presumably not, yeah. Interesting. Huh. Yep. So, uh, Lavalette, prior to the Turks arriving, once he'd gotten word they were coming, he ordered that all the crops on the island be harvested, including unripened grain... Uh, so that the Turks would have no local food supplies um, coming in at any point. Pro game removed. And, you know, when it's an island that small, it's not hard to do. Mm-hmm. Um, furthermore, he had all the wells on the island outside of the citadel poisoned with, you know, poisonous plants and rotting animal carcasses tossed down them. Ooh. There's a cleanup operation you don't want to be a part of. Yep. So he's, uh, he's you know, he's he's rolling the dice. He's ready, ready for this. And uh, so the Turkish Armada arrives at dawn on Friday, the 18th of May, but they did not land at once. Instead, they kind of want to do a little reconnoitering. So they sailed up the southern coast of the island, and then they turned around and sailed up the other way. And finally, they anchored at sort of a little, not very good harbor that was almost uh, 10 kilometers away from the Grand Harbor, which was their objective. Ah, I see. Yeah. Um, at the Admiral, Piale Pasha, wanted to be able to anchor the fleet close to the Grand Harbor in order to support a land assault. He wanted to, you know, do the two-prong thing. But in order to do that, they would need to take out Fort St. Elmo because it's on this high mountain that has an expansive view not only over the Great Harbor, but also over the adjacent harbor, and it has a lot of cannons to cover those harbors, so they're not going to be able to moor anywhere near the Great Harbor as long as Fort St. Elmo is sort of commanding the height. Yeah, I I don't think I'd want to take on a fort that could see everything I was doing and had cannons pointed at me. Especially one named named after Elmo, I mean. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Yep. So uh, that's the Admiral, Piali Pasha. Mustafa, on the other hand, wanted to ignore the main fortress around the Grand Harbor and attack and sack the city of Medina to break the will of the population. Because, you know, you remember what they did to Gozo. They destroyed everything and enslaved the whole population. He wants to do that to the main city on Malta because he thinks that will destroy people's will to fight. Well, I can't say it, it wouldn't work. Um if you're trying to break a population. Yep, but Piali wants to do his thing, and, you know, Fort St. Elmo was the smallest of the Hospitaller forts, and Mustafa figures, okay, I'm not going to make a big issue of this. We'll go and we'll take St. Elmo first, and then we'll do what I want to do. It'll be fine. He expected it would only last a couple of days anyway, since he had such a uh, 
you know, superiority in numbers because Fort St. Elmo was, it was, it was the smallest fort, as I said, and it was manned by about a hundred or so knights, about 500 of the soldiers in the service of the knights and a few hundred Maltese civilians. So like, this is not a, uh, an incredibly large defense force. Yeah. Um, my question is, what are the Ottoman numbers in this one? So they have approximately 50,000. Jesus. Um, it's and it's fifty thousand that includes a lot of their very best troops. Like they have eight thousand janissaries, which are the most elite Ottoman infantry. Uh, they have like six thousand uh, spahis, who are the basically the Ottoman equivalent of mounted knights. Like this is a fifty thousand that includes a lot of their most elite troops from their whole empire. Just, well, I mean, last time they brought more, but it sounds like this time they brought, um... They brought better this they time, They brought a yeah. kill squad. They wanted to take everybody out, um, not just... Yep. And they knew who they were dealing with, it seems. Um, yep, yep. So, Mustafa agrees to launch an attack on Fort St. Elmo. Um, and it's little, tiny, tiny garrison. So, Lavalette ordered the garrison of St. Elmo to fight to the last and never retreat or surrender because Don Garcia, who is the Spanish viceroy of Sicily had promised that he was putting together a relief army that he would send to help them in Malta. And so Lavalette told them that, you know, there will be an army coming at some point to help. So just never abandon your post, no matter what happens, hold Fort St. Elmo. And, uh, so the Turks started by, uh, moving up all their cannons along the uh, the slopes of this mountain. So Mount St. Elmo is on sort of one end of this ridge, and they're just covering the rest of the ridge with their cannons. And probably it's like about 60 siege cannons, I think, and just start shelling. And within a, you know, within a week, the fort is pretty much just a pile of rubble. But even then... It still held, and they didn't surrender. Even when they'd reduced the walls to rubble, Fort St. Elmo stood, uh, you know, as a pile of rubble, but it was a defended pile of rubble. <laughs> the bombardment, you know, the, the bombardment had destroyed all the buildings, but the defenders, both the hospitalers and the local soldiers, were still there and would not surrender. And so they started launching wave after wave of infantry attacks, thinking, okay, we've just got to dislodge them from this pile of rubble. You know, they're not going to be able to defend that. But... They did. Um, they had gr primitive grenades made out of clay pots filled with Greek fire. And as the Ottomans would, uh, you know, would start climbing up the first pile of rubble that had been one of the walls, they'd throw barrages of these napalm pots over and just, you know, light dozens of people on fire with one throw. Oh, wow. And yeah, and so pr the Ottomans launched basically daily assaults on this pile of rubble and failed to dislodge the hospitalers. And every night, because remember, they still control the harbor, Lavalette would evacuate the wounded to other forts, and he would resupply them with, you know, grenades and gunpowder and stuff. Damn. <laughs> yeah. So on, uh, on June 8th, so this is, you know, a couple weeks in, the weary garrison, who, you know, they've spent weeks in this brutal fighting amidst the smoldering wreckage of a fort with barely any shelter, sent a message to the Grand Master Lavalette, and they asked to be allowed to do a sortie to charge out and uh, die with sword in hand in a charge. But Lavalette knew that such an action would be pointless no matter how heroic it was. It wouldn't accomplish anything, and he knew that 
every you know every hour the Turks spent capturing that fort of that fort increased their chances of holding out. So what he does is he offers to send replacements if the knights there are uh, not willing to die at their posts as they've been ordered to do. And so of course they're like, fuck that. And so nobody takes him up on the offer to be replaced at St. Elmo. Everyone stays. Feeling sort of ashamed by his offer to replace them, they're like, nope, we're, we're, go- we're going this the distance. We're going to the end. And they, they continue to hel- hold on. Wave upon wave of Ottoman infantry attacked what was basically just a pile of rocks at this point. Eventually, Turgut was able to position his navy to block traffic across the harbor uh, by getting them in range so they could no longer supply across the harbor. And that, you know, meant that the St. Elmo was not going to be able to hold out much longer once they were no longer able to be supplied. So finally, on June 23rd, uh, the Turks had one last massive infantry assault and took what was left of Fort St. Elmo. The two knights in command, De Garas and De Miranda, were too badly wounded at the beginning of this day to stand, so they literally fought to the death on chairs in the flaming ruins. Holy shit, what? They literally, you know, they both, like, they can't stand, you know, they're missing limbs. They have their men prop them up in chairs and put their weapons in their hands so they can fight to the end. Jeez. That's... That's amazing. I mean, I'm not surprised. At the end of all this, there's just two dudes, two bros with their swords in their chairs, both missing like an arm and a leg, and they look at each other and they're like, "It's yeah, this is it, right?" And it's like, "Ah, this is it." And they're like, "See you on the other other side," and then they fist bump and then they fight from the chair. <laughs> that literal yeah. armchair warriors. <laughs> <laughs> the real armchair generals. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, it's just incredible. Um, it's just incredible. So outside of nine Maltese men, so people from the militia who were able to swim across the Harbor to safety, everyone else in St. Elmo was slaughtered. But on the day of that final fall, when they're making their last advance, a cannonball from St. Elmo obliterated the head of Turgut race and sent the most feared pirate King of the Mediterranean, a man who had spent 50 years literally enslaving hundreds of thousands of people directly to hell jeez what yeah uh, literally a mu- uh, the last day after a month of this one cannonball just whoosh, gone off, <laughs> takes his head off hey you finally made and noises of, <laughs> um yep and of course you know this is we're talking like one of the most feared people in the entire world oh man and thus the battle was won and the game of golf was invented all in one Oh, um, it's the battle is battle is far, far from over. Uh, <laughs> well, that was a Gandalf joke. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I got it. All right. All right. So uh, St. Elmo was taken um, and the about a thousand defenders had perished on the walls of the smallest of Malta's fortifications. But what was supposed to have taken about a day had taken a month and 8000 Turkish troops, including over half of their janissaries lay baking in the summer sun. Ugh, the smell. Ugh. Yeah. And remember, many of them were burned to death with Greek fire as well, so the smell was probably really bad. Yeah, yeah. I guess I didn't think about the other baking that they experienced. (laughs) Jesus. Yep. So after the smoke had cleared, uh, Mustafa Pasha looked across the bay at the much, much larger Fort St. Angelo on the Bergu Peninsula and said, 
If so small a son has cost us so dear, what price shall we have to pay for so large a father? Oh god, is that like a documented that, like Yes, yeah, no, that's an actual quote. Damn. This shit's hardcore. <laughs> yeah, no, the fact that there has not been an epic movie about this is disgusting. Yeah. What else is new? Yep. Exactly. So uh so Mustafa orders the bodies of the fallen defenders to be decapitated and nailed to crosses and set afloat in the harbor where the current would bring them to the shores of the remaining hospitaller forts. Oof. Mustafa thought that such a display of, you know, barbarous blasphemy would terrify the knights and their allies into surrendering. Yeah. Mustafa th- Mustafa thought wrong. Yeah, I was going to say if there's one thing I know about characters that uh, hold out in a fort for a month and, you know, fight to the last man. It's that this kind of shit is kind of pathetic. Yeah, so um, so he does that. He sends him across the shore. And then that night, the guns of the Hospitaller Forts opened up a salvo and irregular, wet, soft cannonballs rained down upon Mustafa's camp. And those cannonballs were Turkish heads. Oh, shit. <laughs> When the flotilla of crucified corpses had made landfall, Lavalette ordered all the Turkish soldiers taken prisoner to be brought out of the dungeon, beheaded on the walls, and their heads to be fired at the camp of their leader, Mustafa. Oh my god. Whoa, he's really mad. (laughs) Mustafa had sent a message by the crucifixions, and that message was that, you know, there would be no mercy and no quarter, and Lavalette sent a message back, and that message was that, I read you loud and clear. Yep. Oh, man, this is going to be brutal, isn't it? Oof. Yep. So at this point, um, after Zenomo, uh, a a very small Spanish relief force arrived in secret on the island under the cover of darkness, but it was only 600 men, which is not a very big army. Um, But they they had it in and they promised the real army is still on its way. It's going to come. Why the Viceroy of Sicily kept delaying sending the real army is hard to say. Like, there are a lot of a lot of different theories, like, did he actually need more time to get the army together? Or was he, you know, hoping that the knights would be destroyed and then he could take out the, you know, weakened Turks? Like, it's nobody really knows. But in any case, there's still no army. Yeah. Um, and it was clear to Lavalette that he wasn't going to be able to count on anyone but himself and his own men to defend Balta. Yep. So, uh, with Saint Elmo in Ottoman hands, Mustafa turned his attention to one of the other, one of the two peninsulas in the harbor, that of Senglaya, which uh, was less heavily defended than Burgu. Burgu's where uh, Castle Saint Angelo is. That's the biggest one. Saint Michael is slightly smaller, and so he thought he'd take that one first. And he was going to do a simultaneous assault by both land and sea on the fort of Saint Michael, but. Since it's uh, further in the harbor, this would mean he would have to sail past the guns of Fort St. Angelo in order to attack Fort St. Michael by sea, and that's obviously not a great plan. So he ordered his ships to be dragged out of the sea, over land, across the foothills of Mount Skibarus, and then floated to the west of Sanglia. So basically, he's going to try to attack from the land side of the harbor with his boats. By dragging them over the island. What? What? I just don't see how that's like the best strategy, and it seems like a waste of energy. 
Uh, well, I mean, he wants to do a combined assault, and he can't get his fleet in without exposing oh, them yeah. to, you know, the gunfire from the bigger fort that's at the mouth of the harbor. So he drags them across the island to deposit them in the harbor past the big fort where it's not in their range anymore. Well, goddamn, I guess you can drag a ship across land. Yep. So on the on the seaside, the, uh, the Senglea Peninsula was uh, defended by a sort of palisade of stakes and chains driven into the seabed, while the entrance to the harbor on the eastern side was closed by a chain. So they are even within the harbor, which is protected, there are then, like, you know, protections for individual parts of the harbor. But there was a little spur at the end of the peninsula that was only defended by a low embankment. And so that's where you'd be able to land troops. You couldn't land troops where they have the chain things guarding it. But there was one area where there was just an embankment. And Mustafa thought, that's where I can bring my naval forces. And then we'll hit them on one side by land. We'll land with the naval forces at the same time and sandwich them. Okay, it's a plan. So uh, we're into July now, and uh, Mustafa has been, you know, bombarding this fort for quite a while, um, and he has his his infantry charging at the fort, even though, you know, he knows they're not going to be able to take it, they're just going to die trying to take the walls, but he thinks if he attacks at the front, his boats will be able to land at the back of the peninsula and storm the island from the other side. Okay. Mm. And so they... uh, and they, they, you know, they brought the Sunday best. So they had, there's great descriptions of the boats. They had all these uh, colorful flags and pennants flying. And they were led by three boatloads of uh, Muslim holy men who were chanting verses from the Quran to inspire the attackers um, as this, this fleet sailed across the harbor towards the peninsula. Uh, as they got near the shore, uh, the, the boats with the, the holy men stopped because they they aren't really what you want to land with um, right. <laughs> and the actual boats full of soldiers took the lead um, and they were being you know they were being shot at from uh, from the fort but that was to be expected um, wasn't going to stop them because they had a lot of boats with a lot of men but just when Mustafa thinks okay now it's time and you know the uh, his first ships have kind of absorbed a lot of the gunfire and he sends 10 boats carrying a thousand janissaries the best troops in the ottoman empire sends them forward to uh, make the final landing now that sort of his smaller boats have you know weakened the defenses well this is this is the real uh this is the real challenge now gotta take yep. on the special so, forces mustafa obviously thought that victory was within his grasp that he was about to win but he had overlooked one key thing and i literally mean overlooked because he didn't see it uh less than 200 meters away right at the shore of the peninsula um immediately across from the point where they were planning on landing across you know across the little narrow part was a concealed gun battery right at the water level that Lavalette had had installed. Oh, so a row, oh of no. a row of cannons at water level, you know, that's directly covering the one place you could land a boat. God, oh and, no. Uh, yep, yeah. and so um, just as Mustafa thinks, okay, we're finally going to do it, he said a thousand of his best troops in his best boats, they're about to land, but... Timing his moment to perfection, waiting till they're just in the right spot, the knight who's in charge of the cannons gives the order, and an entire volley of chain shot opens up 
at 200 meters, which is, you know, less like a quarter of the range of these cannons. So we're talking extremely close range at ships that are broadside to them that don't even know they're there. Oh, Jesus. Opens up with an entire battery. Within minutes, nine of the ten boats were completely destroyed and sunk. Uh, many of the, the Janissaries themselves were ripped to shreds by the chain shot, or they, you know, if they didn't get hit, um, they were falling in the water and ended up, you know, crawling to the beach where um, the local Maltese militia, you know, mercilessly executed anyone who landed on the beach. Because let's face it, they pretty much destroyed your island. So I get that. Yeah, yeah. Oh my Yeah, so the God. Maltese civilians are there with knives just shanking anybody who tries to swim ashore. God damn. I mean, after all this, you know, that's what there's like scenes in movies like that where, you know, like the the little guy finally gets to kick the big guy at the end. Um it's kind of what that feels like. Mhm. Mm yeah, totally. And so yeah, within basically within minutes, a thousand of the best troops in the Ottoman Empire were annihilated which is just crazy to think about. Yeah, a thousand. Whew, yeah, yep. And that would be a big yep. blow for Mustafa, too. He'd be like, oh, God, like... Yeah, especially because he thought he was about to win. Like, he was like, finally, it's time. Yeah, after months, he brings out the secret special forces. He's like, here's my secret wild card. And then they're like, well, we kind of expected that, so here you go. Bang. <laughs> yeah. You've activated my trap card. <laughs> You've activated my trap card. <laughs> yep. Uh. So, obviously, this assault uh, failed, and the Ottomans withdrew to uh, further away from the, uh, the, the harbor, and they subjected those two peninsulas to what is considered to have been the heaviest bombardment the world had seen up to that time. Okay, of course they did. Over 130,000 cannonballs were launched at those two forts. Jeez. Uh, I can't even conceptualize what that would be like to, to endure. Yeah, it was just, it was nonstop, yeah. 24 hours a day. He had 60-something siege cannons nonstop firing for weeks. God. <laughs> yep. Yo. <laughs> but, um, you know, Lavalette ain't no bitch, and he doesn't care. Um, so... No surrender. They held out. Um, you know, they repulsed tons of attacks on the walls. All the while, they're waiting uh, for news of the arrival of a relief force, since the Spanish had promised that they'd send a relief force, and Vlavalec's just hoping it comes at some point, because, you know, he's getting tired of kicking ass all by himself. Right. <laughs> at the same time, uh, Mustafa is also getting really tired of this, and he knows that uh, he can't do this forever. Like, he's having to, you know, ship all his supplies in by sea. Like, he can't do this indefinitely. Right, yep. So, uh, in August, he decides to order another massive all-out attack on the on both citadels, uh, Senglea and Burgu, both the two peninsulas. And um, Lavalette himself... Even though he's 71 years old, he personally is on the walls directing the defense, like sword in hand, 71 years old, giving orders and, you know, dodging cannonballs and stuff. <laughs> That's a virile 70-year-old. Yeah, it really is. And they're yeah. just, it's wave after wave. No sooner 
would they drive back one wave, then the next wave would attack the walls. And, you know, the knights were running out of men who weren't injured. They were running out of ammunition. Uh, the walls were, you know, eventually breached. And you've just got Lavalette there defending. But, you know, everyone knows, okay, once the walls are breached, they just can't last very much longer. So Mustafa's like, finally, it's finally going to happen. Uh-oh. And then oh, no. suddenly... There was another little oversight earlier that uh, brought forth a pretty terrible harvest for Mustafa. You remember how there was the city of Medina, which Mustafa had originally wanted to siege first, but then it kind of ignored after that? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it had its own garrison as well. It was a small garrison, but it had a garrison. And a very small group of knights uh, had ridden out from Medina and launched a raid on the completely unguarded Ottoman camp, since the Ottomans are all launching this assault. And they're burning the tents and freeing captives, and, I know this is rough, but war's hell, slaughtering all the wounded Turkish soldiers who were back at the camp. Oh, man, well, it, this is getting... I mean, obviously this is quite brutal and has been, but, you know, yeah. both sides are responding in kind to what the other is doing, you know? Like, I get it, I get it. Yep. And so as news of this savage retribution reaches the front, Mustafa has to call off the assault after they've finally breached the wall. He has to call back the assault and bring his forces back so that he can retake his own camp. Man. Oh. Yep. Yep. And uh, see, Mustafa had forgotten about Medina, as I said. And so when he heard that the camp was being attacked, he actually thought that a relief army had landed. And so that's another reason he was so, oh, my God, we've got to pull the army back to the camp because he thought there was an actual army. In reality, it was just like, you know, a few dozen knights. Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, and so he gets back to the camp, and the knights are gone, and he realizes that there was still no relief army, and that it was actually just a few knights who had absolutely thrown his plan into the dumpster. And so he's <laughs> so pissed. He's like, we are, we're, you're taking this freaking island. <laughs> yeah, I, I get it. <laughs> That's what I'm just going to yep. keep saying, is I get it, because like every single step of this story makes perfect sense when you're thinking about it in terms of like the heat of these moments. Like mm -hmm. you get, yeah. you finally breach the wall. It's the, it's like you're at your peak and then you turn around and your whole camp is on fire and you're just like, Oh my God. Again, <laughs> <laughs> every time, every time. Yeah. So he does what he usually does. And he orders the bombardment of Fort St. Michael again. Um, he resumes the bombardment and on August 19th, the Turks actually successfully tunneled under the city walls or under the fort's walls and detonated a huge mine blowing a crater in the defenses uh, that were erected and uh you know this is a massive explosion everyone's like sh shell-shocked like what's happening but lavalette himself sword in hand comes down and stands in this gaping crater and rallies the shaken defenders to hold this the hold the line and once again the Turks cannot break through. 71-year-old guy. After all this, yep. b bombardments, bombs, everything, he's still standing there. What? That is some kind of dude, I will say that. I mean, all of these guys are, like, the Turks included. This is intensely brutal and, and uh, my God, I don't know how they kept doing it. Yep. Yep. 
So uh, towards the end of August, the Turks attempt uh, once again to take Fort St. Michael, this time by use of full-blown siege towers. They're like, okay, we've knocked holes in the walls, but, you know, they plug them up and we can't get through them um, in time. So we're going to try siege towers. We're going to go over the walls yeah. this time. I mean, yep. you got you to gotta employ multiple strategies, I guess, at this point. You know, you have to solve the problem. Um, and if you've blown up the walls, you've tried blowing up the people, what have you got left except for siege towers? Yep. So as these uh, siege towers approach the walls, however, Maltese engineers had actually tunneled through all the rubble and had little, uh, they had little tunnels already prepared. And as the siege towers are just about to get to the wall, these Maltese engineers pop out of these little tunnels with these little small cannons they dragged with them and fire point blank chain shot at the base of the siege towers, just cutting them down like trees. <laughs> and so these massive siege towers are just toppling, you know, just throwing the broken bodies of the besiegers in the dust. Oh, God, this is some mountain blade shit right here. Yeah, and you just, you know, you kind of then the, the engineers would just get back in their little tunnels, move a couple rocks. And like everything is such like a post-apocalyptic wasteland at this point that, you know, the Turks can't tell where the tunnels are coming from or because everything has been shelled for, you know, so long that you can't really tell where these openings even are. Yeah, well, that's uh, kind of it's interesting. The uh, the uh, defenders adapted to their new environment. You know, they didn't have a fort, so they fought in a pile of rubble. <laughs> yep, yep. So finally, at the beginning of September, uh, the weather was starting to turn cold, and Mustafa knew he needed a place for his army to stay during the winter. And so he decides to wheel away from the fortresses and order an attack on Medina because he wants to take it and then shelter there during the winter. However, by then, his troops were so beaten and demoralized that they basically just were like, nah, man, we're not attacking a city. Like, yeah. I'm going to keep it real with you, Vizier. I'm not attacking a city right now. <laughs> yeah, for real. I mean, that's. I think that's exa probably exactly how it went. He was like, attack, attack. And they're like, come on, man. Come on. Like, we're just... Yep. Do we look like we can take a city? So, finally, on the 7th of September, uh, Mustafa got the text message he'd been afraid of. Uh, oh, a reinforcement army of several thousand had landed. A real army this time. And so he's like, okay, okay, I'm done. He orders his army back onto the ships and they're about to leave. But then he gets another message that the relief army wasn't as big as they'd initially expected. And so he's like, okay, I could still pull this one off. And he orders everybody who could still stand, which is about 10,000 people off the ships again, back in battle formation. We're doing this again. And marches this army off to fight the relief force, which had landed from Spain. Imagine, be imagine being one of those Ottoman soldiers. You, like, finally get back on the boat. You're like, we're going to go home. I somehow survived all this terror. And then your guy comes out and he's like, oh, just kidding. There's not as many as we thought, so we're going to try again. <laughs> yep. Mm. So, yep, he's marching with his 10,000, and uh, this was this was a terrible miscalculation. Because it turns out that the army was actually bigger than initially reported, not smaller. Of course. 
and its soldiers were they were experienced like these were veterans they were also you know fresh and well rested and well fed whereas his troops had been living on a rock in constant explosions <laughs> for four months yeah i don't think they're gonna they're gonna last very long so yeah basically the turkish army instantly broke when wow. it was engaged and fled back to the ships pursued by the uh, the christian relief force well and there you have it. The The Great Siege of Malta was over. About 35,000 Turks lay dead. The knights had lost about a third of their number, and the uh, inhabitants of Malta, the civilians, had lost about a third of their population. Jeez. Its fortresses were essentially leveled by, you know, 130,000 cannonballs. But nevertheless, 9,000 defenders had withstood a siege of more than four months in the summer. And uh, they had shown the world that the mighty Sultan was not as invincible as he supposed. Yeah, that's a bad look for the Sultan. Yeah. So uh, Lavalette, the Grand Master of the Knights of Malta, um, was obviously, you know, probably the reason they were able to pull off this victory um, with his, you know, leadership and influence. And his ability to encourage and hold these different people together as one was extremely important because it was a really, really big example that you can do this you can get all these people together from around europe and you can beat the turks hmm. and this example had a lot to do with uh the various kings of europe coming together into the holy league in just a few years to resist the you know previously invincible seeming ottomans and uh seven years later at the battle of lepanto uh you know knights from all over europe uh, came together and broke the back of the Ottoman navy in one of their most disastrous defeats in history and really marked the beginning of the end of the Ottoman Empire's expansion. Yeah, I remember we covered the Battle of Lepanto a long time ago. Um, that's Yes, yeah, so there would have been no Lepanto without Malta. That's, that's a really great uh, example, I think, to set. I mean, obviously it's a great example to set. Because I mean, think of think about um, the morale of these countries that are are not really countries, more like kingdoms that are um, the the morale of the people who know that at any moment this invincible fighting force could just march down your front door and there would probably be nothing you could do about it. Um, and in the meantime, you know that the uh, people in charge can't really do anything about it because you're also aware uh, that they have their own little problems and infighting and all this stuff that you know they don't like each other and. But meanwhile, these Ottomans are just, these guys are united, and they're coming your way, and if you don't do something soon, if you don't stand together, uh, you're going to be crushed into dust. And something like the Siege of Malta, as a picture of unification across the, uh, you know, across different lines to defend against this heavily unified and very fierce fighting force, well, that's very good for, uh, for population morale, I would say. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And so uh, to sort of wrap up here, after the Great Siege, uh, Lavalette uh, commissioned the construction of a new capital city for Malta. Because, um, you know, the, their fortresses were pretty much leveled. And he personally laid the uh, the foundation stone of this city in the next year, 1566. And the city was actually, uh, everyone insisted that it be named after him. And that is why the capital of Malta to this day is Valletta. Um, and this this new this new city was built on the slopes of Mount Skibaris, um, where the fort of Saint Elmo had been 
and where the uh, the flower of the Turkish army had died trying to storm that fort. You know, a fort which the Turks thought would fall within a couple days, but which held out for over 30 days and really bought the time that was necessary for the rest of the battle to be won. And so that's where he laid the foundations of this new capital right there on the slope. That's a hell of a memorial. Yeah. And so um, a few years later, actually, um, he suffered, Lavalette, who's, you know, pretty old, yeah. <laughs> suffered a, uh, a stroke while praying in a chapel and died soon after on the 21st of August, 1568, exactly 11 years to the day after he was elected as Grand Master of the Order. Um, he never saw the city completed. It was still under construction when he died, but his tomb can still be visited. It is in the crypt of the conventual church of the order, which is within the old old city walls of Valletta. And the inscription that's on his tomb was composed by his secretary, who was a man named Sir Oliver Starkey, who was the last English Knight of Malta. Because remember, when the English Reformation happened and England broke with the church, obviously you're no longer going to have an English branch of the Knights of Malta. Anyway, so yeah, so this is what his secretary, the last English Knight of Malta, wrote as the inscription on his tomb. Here lies Lavalette, worthy of eternal honor, he who was once the scourge of Africa and Asia and the shield of Europe, whence he expelled the barbarians by his holy arms, is the first to be buried in this beloved city whose founder he was. And uh, with that, I'm, I'm about ready to finish it up. What do you think? I uh, I think it's I think it's probably a good time to, to call it quits, but my God, what a great story. Man, I don't think I'm ever going to get tired of you covering dudes who just, like, unite people and, and fight crazy battles. Hey, man, you know, that's what I'm here for. I love this stuff. Yeah, I'll just keep doing the Emanuel Swedenborg types. <laughs> yeah, you can, you, can, you can do the weird people. Okay, gladly. I will gladly do the weird people. Okay, on that note, uh, I think we should head to the surface. Let's do it. George, what exciting things have you already accomplished in this new year? Well, I wouldn't say I've accomplished anything, but I am working on trying to learn how to make proper uh, Stroop waffles. You know those, like, Dutch cookies that, like, look like <laughs> mini waffles? Okay, Dwight. <laughs> do, we, do, we, do, you, do you know about Stroop, do you know Stroop waffles? Uh, I, I know about Stroop waffles, I think. Anyway, it's they're delicious like... and I love them. What does Dwight have to do with it? Oh, nothing. It's Stroop waffle just sounds like something Dwight Schrute would try to make. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I don't watch The Office. I don't blame you. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I'm working on uh, on perfecting making Stroop waffles. So that's that's my accomplishments. What about you, Aaron? I literally joined a gym today. Uh, and that is all I've done my whole life. I didn't even shower this morning. I just went to the gym and joined. That's it. Classic. Just kidding. Yeah, no, I've done more than that, but uh, it's not time to toot my own horn. It's time to toot our horn. It's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably right, so consider funding the show by becoming a patron on patreon.com, or if Patreon is not your thing, drop us a little tip in Venmo. That's at WTADP. Every little bit helps. 
And also remember to share the podcast and go back and listen to other episodes and tell your friends because that's literally the best thing you can do for us. Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson, the Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of the great Siege of Malta play you out.